What we see that would go against that grain is a rapid increase in the number of missile silos, a rapid increase in the number of missiles and inventory that they actually have in a buildup of the, the warheads themselves. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vaga Maradian. The Pentagon calls China its pacing threat. What kind of pace are they setting, especially for the People's Liberation Army Air Force? We'll get an answer from Dr. Brendan Mulvaney, the director of the China Aerospace Studies Institute at National Defense University. And this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And the Defense and Aerospace Report's daily coverage is also brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Well, a big piece of news that you've already discussed on Sunday's business report, but it applies very much here. Germany has indicated that it's willing to let the Eurofighter Consortium sell aircraft to Saudi Arabia. Germany had demurred on that previously due to human rights concerns, but the world situation seems to have changed Berlin's mind, and that may change their mind with regard to other exports as well. France has signed a deal for 42 Dassault Rafales for the Armée d'Alaire. This is on the heels of an Indonesian order for 18. The problem is they're only building 12 to 14 jets a year. Last year, they made 13. So with their current order book, they're going to be building these planes for decades. Something has to change. And if you see Slovakia, congratulate them on their new ride. They just got the first two of 14 Block 70 F-16s, the fanciest Vipers in Europe. KC-46s keep coming off the line, and they have to go somewhere. The latest 12 will be going to Selfridge Air National Guard Base in Michigan. I've always wondered about that base, Vago, being named for the first person to lose their life in an aircraft accident. And I believe some congratulations are in order. Indeed. Hearty congratulations to Second Lieutenant Madison Marsh. Uh, for the three of you out there who don't know why she is in the news, she is the first active duty U.S. military member to win the Miss America pageant. She's also an Air Force Academy graduate and attending uh, Harvard's Kennedy School. So aim high indeed. The very uh, definition of a multiple threat. Very definition of America's finest. Uh, I should point out about Selfridge. A friend's grandfather was actually a commander at Selfridge, uh, I think in the late 1920s, mid-1920s, I want to say. And, you know, the family served in the Air Force for uh, decades, actually, and there is still family serving in the Air Force. So that's multi-generational commitment to air power. He also had the coolest swagger stick that was made of a piece of uh, propeller that I think he crashed during World War One, and he had it made into a swagger stick. So as <laughs> swagger sticks go, that was pretty impressive. So just want to go to the Germany story. Uh, certainly good news. And it becomes, as we discussed on the roundtable, something interesting in the duel as both the Franco-German-Spanish SCAF program, as well as the UK-led Tempest programs compete for Saudi Arabia uh, and the UAE's attentions uh, on these programs. It's fascinating. Dassault was at five airplanes a year, I think, uh, JJ. So getting to 14 is a big deal. And I think that they recognize that they need to step it up. But again, I mean, it's an organization that was making boutique airplanes for a long time. 
And, you know, they're very, very careful not to cause themselves quality problems, right? I mean, I think one admirable quality of Dassault has always been get suppliers aboard, get the best suppliers aboard, keep those suppliers aboard, and don't drop suppliers because they're, you know, as Serge Dassault once told me, you American guys, approve an existing supplier's prices go up a little bit and you guys dump them. And then you end up having more problems or have massive swings in workforce, whereas they try to be very level and long-term in their approach. Well, with regard to Germany, it's interesting because there's been reports for a long time, and I know that, for example, Richard Abalafia is one of the believers in this, that there's a lot of tension between France and Germany on the SCAF program and that Germany has been interested in looking around, but it wasn't clear that they would be welcome on the Tempest or Global Combat Air Program, specifically because of their political objections to some exports. If Berlin is willing to be a little easier on exports, they may be more welcome to switch programs. And I think at that point, the issue was whether the Saudis were too toxic to have on the program. Once the Germans have dropped their objections, I think that you have to see the calculus in London changing fundamentally, right? Because the Saudis have been key for virtually every important British combat aircraft program, going back to the Hunter, the Lightning, the Tornado, and then the Typhoon. So I, you know, I think that at some point you're going to move a needle on this as the Brits want to welcome aboard a well-heeled investment partner. And as far as, you know, they're trying to build a truly global combat air program that already includes the Japanese, includes the Italians. And certainly, you know, there's room in this program for somebody ambitious who wants to make a mark and again, sort of distance themselves from the United States, which is still being very restrictive in how it looks toward the Saudis, I think. But ultimately, it comes down to the question of, will the French cheese stand alone? French cheeses always stand alone, don't they, JJ, at the end? And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, they clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. And joining us today is the director of the China Aerospace Studies Institute at the National Defense University, Dr. Brendan Mulvaney. Sir, welcome back to the Air Power Podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. An absolute pleasure. Washington and the world are increasingly concerned about China's military buildup. And indeed, the Secretary of the United States Air Force, Frank Kendall, uh, has made it abundantly clear that the Chinese are actually building up the specific capabilities they need to fight the United States, unfortunately. And it's important to be honest about that. What is it that we saw, Brendan, from a concepts development standpoint, from a hardware standpoint, and from an exercise standpoint that we saw in 2023 that indicates the progress that they're making. Yeah, it was a it was admittedly a pretty big year for the PLA Air Force, although you know <laughs> year on year it tends to be that way, COVID notwithstanding. But I think interestingly, the great part about being at Cassie is we study quote everything that flies, and so one of the things that really impacted the Air Force actually came from the Navy in early 2023. You know, the first half, for whatever reason, the People's Liberation Army's Navy decided to start transferring aviation units from the naval aviation units uh, over to the PLA Air Force, uh, which meant that by mid-year in 23, you know, June, July, 
it had already transferred the majority of the naval aviation fighters, bombers, radar, air defense, and even airfield units over to the uh, the PLA Air Force. So this was actually fairly interesting, and you know we hadn't seen really any indications that they were going to do this prior to them just simply starting to do it. And then, of course, there's a lot of speculation about it. The Chinese didn't really talk about why they were doing it. Are they leaning naval aviation and getting ready them for more carrier aviation-based? Are they consolidating things? Was it a bureaucratic infight that the, the Navy lost? I tend to doubt that was the case. But certainly that, that reorg was probably the biggest news, I would say, overall, because it was such a, a massive shift. Other than that, they continued to fly more. They flew over the Straits more. They flew more UAVs. You know, they continued to, uh, both the Navy and the Air Force, continued to fly over water into and around the, the Taiwanese Aedas, especially in that Southwest sector. So there was a lot of stuff going on, but I would say that the single biggest thing was this massive shift from the Navy, shift in aircraft and personnel and organizations over the Air Force. Then before I turn it over uh, to JJ, roughly how many airplanes are we talking about? How many personnel are we talking about? Because whenever the Chinese do something, the numbers tend to be generous. Yeah, well, certainly. So off the top of my head, I think it was uh, three fighter brigades, a couple bomber regiments because they hadn't actually converted to brigades, I believe probably three radar brigades, three air defense brigades, and several of the actual airfield stations, which interesting for, you know, PLA watchers or for actually not for non-PLA watchers, an airfield station actually is an organizational unit. The, the Chinese use the term base in two different ways. A little B base means a physical place like we mean it. A big B base is actually a physical organization. So these uh, airfield stations are an organization in and of themselves, but they also transfer the airfield. So it was uh, it was pretty sizable. You know, you're talking multiple brigades that went from the Navy uh, over to the Air Force. Brendan, since our audience is predominantly air folks, how do you equate a Chinese brigade, the uh, usually an Army term of measurement, with, say, an Air Force wing or numbered Air Force? So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the interesting thing is that the PLA does, in fact, use Army terms. So even on the Air Force and on the Navy side, they'll use an Army term. In fact, uh, there's no uh, term for admiral in Chinese. It's literally a Navy general, but we translate it. So for all the airmen out there thinking on the American side of things, a brigade is typically about 30 aircraft. So you can think of that. They have, again, underneath the brigade, they have battalions that they will call them, you know, and these groups uh, underneath them. So if you're thinking about 30 aircraft, uh, depending on, you know, if it's a bomber or a fighter, uh, special mission, that's kind of about what they have. Uh, and then they have all the functional equipment that goes along with it. Uh, this also includes some spares and some that are typically in the maintenance backstop so that there's constantly an internal brigade rotation of the aircraft with there. Typically at this point, most of the brigades have a single type of aircraft, so we don't see very many mixes. A couple of years ago, they tried to mix some of them and came into some uh, some logistics problems. And so they've, they've kind of gone back to this idea of a single aircraft brigade, and then they mix the brigades when they go uh, when they go out and train and practice, which, again, has some interesting command and control outcomes. But that's about the size of a brigade, uh, 25 to 30 aircraft, if you want to think of it that way. Talking a couple thousand, probably, people to be able to service uh, all of those aircraft, as well as all the administrative, the support, the logistics, and also the political commissar system, right? So every unit, the, there's going to be a headquarters element, which is kind of what we would call the ops department. There's going to be a political work unit or organization department, uh, and then there's going to be a support department. So uh, every organization within the PLA is going to have those three departments underneath the headquarters element. And, uh, and so, you're, you're, you know, if you multiply that by the number of groups underneath there, you get, uh, you know, a couple thousand. 
Fascinating, too, that the Chinese and the U.S. Air Force are going through reorganization at the same time. Given where they are in that process and the tempo of exercises we've seen from them in 2023, do you expect them to be able to keep that up in 2024? And what more of the reorganization might we see? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that China has been working slowly and steadily at is getting better at this ability to keep up the pace. It used to be that we would see huge spikes followed by big lulls for you know a maintenance stand-down, recoup, reconstitution, things like that. Although that is still the case today, they can't keep those operations up as long as the United States can, but they've made huge leaps and bounds. So yeah, we should not expect any significant diminution of PLA just in general air activity Uh, especially in and around the Straits in the coming year. We should expect them to keep that up because that is one of the things that they continue to work at. And the best way to work at it is exercises or real world operations. So they're probably going to keep up that pace. And now that they have more assets with them, they can, you know, rotate some of those through on a different basis and, and allow some of the pilots and airframes time to reconstitute without having to drop the overall activity level. Um, what What is the impact, Brendan, that sort of leadership perturbations have meant, right? The defense minister disappeared. The strategic rocket force guy disappeared. There are, you know, hints of corruption charges. And she is trying to assert control over, you know, I mean, I, I think he's got total control over the military, but under the guise of fighting corruption, he is sort of putting loyalists in a lot of these jobs. And in some cases, he is fighting corruption. Let's just be honest. What do all of these leadership changes mean and how does it impact how the organization is stepping up its game. Yeah, I would say on the personnel side, that was absolutely the biggest story. And I do just want to make a quick point about Xi Jinping and this anti-corruption. When Xi Jinping came to power, he surveyed the landscape of all that was, uh, you know, the PRC and the CCP's domain. And he found the greatest threat to China being able to realize, you know, quote, the Chinese dream or returning to the center of the world stage. These are all the communist propaganda talking points. The biggest threat was not the U.S. military, it was not the international situation, it was corruption within the party itself. And so he has gone after, you know, they call them flies and tigers ever since he came to power. And this year was a big year, right? Bigger than the last several years put together. But it's because he has continued to drive home that, no, the party is the way, the truth and the light. It is the way, in his mind, that they reach the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. But if the people don't have trust and confidence in the party, the whole thing crumbles. And so he is going after it. So the, the rocket force reorganization was massive. It took both the commissar, uh, the political commissar, as well as the commander out, replaced it with non-rocket force officers, which is a little less crazy in the PLA system, but still fairly significant. Uh, we saw just at the very end of the year, while uh, the West was worried about uh, having New Year's celebrations and watching balls drop uh, and fireworks across the world, the CCP actually kicked out a whole bunch of uh, top brass, mostly on these corruption charges. And of course, you know, the PLA system before Xi Jinping came to power, everybody was corrupt because that's just how the system worked and that's how one advanced. So that was, you know, just like I said, on a, on a side note, it really is about corruption because that's how Xi Jinping sees the, the health of the party and the stability uh, in the long term for them. As far as what it's doing to the military, I would have to say that like any military, if you get that significant of a turnover at the top, one, there's going to be a period where you have to adjust. There's going to be a period of some internal housekeeping, because uh, while we saw the major figures go down and those get reported on, there's a whole bunch of things that fall out from that. You know, the deputies, the people at the lower level divisions, you know, the departments and uh, and the training bureaus and things like that. You have to see how all of that is going to shake out. So I want to make clear that if Xi Jinping tells the PLA to go and fight and win a war somewhere, they absolutely are going to do that tomorrow. 
but all things being equal, it looks like uh, they're going to have to ratchet down some of the things that they were trying to get at uh, in order to get their hands on just how bad was the corruption, just what was the impact. I think everyone saw the the report uh, in the Washington papers about water being used instead of rocket fuel. I don't know if that's true or not. If it is, certainly that implies a much bigger problem rather than just corruption and people skimming off the top. So they're going to need to spend a year or two to get their hands around that, especially, like I said, in the rocket forces uh, and some of these these other high-level places that have had the turnover. But again, you know, it goes all the way up to the defense minister, uh, which causes a shuffle in the Central Military Commission. So they're probably going to try to take a breather after the Chinese New Year here in about a month or so, and then kind of come back and reorganize and fit. I want to ask you about China's nuclear modernization. It is very, very dramatic, as are the improvements in their space capabilities, which you've discussed with our friend and colleague, uh, Laura Winter, who is the host of The Downlink. The nuclear modernization is particularly worrying that Secretary Kendall you know, often talks about it, right? That it's of our arsenal is sized basically to deter uh, and deal with one large nuclear adversary, uh, which are the Russians, as opposed to being able to deal with this sort of three-way dynamic. Where are they in the process of that modernization? And are our generational nuclear modernization plans sufficient to deal with two large nuclear armed adversaries? That's a great question. Uh, to take that last part first, I would say, yes, we absolutely still have the size and capability we need to deal with a whole host of nuclear armed adversaries. We just had the nuclear power post review. We absolutely need to do some modernization, some updating. You know, a lot of the stuff we have is uh, you know, decades old, several decades old at this point, so it needs to be updated. But in terms of, you know, number and capacity and capability, yes, we're still in totally good shape. The more interesting question is what has changed in China that has made them try to do this, right? So obviously for a long time, up until just a couple of years ago, they maintained the minimal credible deterrent. The Chinese claim that they still have a minimal credible deterrent, just that the international situation has changed, uh, which has required a change in that number. Now, they haven't been very specific as to what it is that drove that change. Part of it, I think, my personal opinion on this, is that we continue to have these nuclear power server use. And I can tell you what the next one is going to say, even though we just finished the last one last year. And the next one will say we still need a nuclear triad, right? Because they all say we need a nuclear triad. And I think China has been reading them and decided that if they want to be a great power and they want to compete, that they need a triad. So if you're going to go from essentially uh, all they had was land-based deterrence to building out the Navy and building out the air component, then you're absolutely going to need to increase the number. What we see that would go against that grain is a rapid increase in the number of missile silos, a rapid increase in the number of missiles and inventory that they actually have in a buildup of the, the warheads themselves. So this is what's new. The Chinese have been a little less than forthcoming as to what it is in their mind that is driving the need to do that. Again, they would still characterize it as a minimal credible deterrent. They have, you know, several hundred uh, warheads now, again, up from anywhere between, you know, I would call it 120, you know, five years ago or something like that. And so the real question is, uh, what is it that they see that they need this bigger uh, inventory of? So. Again, on the nuclear weapons, uh, even in the United States, we don't tend to talk about it a whole lot. Uh, the Chinese even less so because they see themselves as uh, far smaller uh, and far more vulnerable to the, the overmatch that the U.S. has. So the, the DOD has put out a, a couple of estimates as to how much uh, they're going to grow that capacity, how varied it will be. 
and uh, the Chinese have kind of remained mum on all of those estimates. So uh, it could be a couple hundred missiles uh, or weapons, or it could be, uh, you know, a thousand or a couple thousand. Uh, at this point, uh, we expect that China is going to be limited under current designs and under just the, the amount of nuclear fissile material that they have available unless they uh, restart some of the reactors and spin up some stuff to start making it, which is, again, totally possible. Sure, it would take a couple of years, but uh, as long as uh, there's no major war where you're going to need a nuclear weapon, you got a couple of years to do it. For years, we said they couldn't build a lot of missiles. They've built a lot of missiles. For years, we said they couldn't build five nanometer semiconductors. They've built five nanometer semiconductors. We've said for a long time that China is not able to build its own jet engines. And yet they've developed a passenger aircraft engine. And this year we saw them fly the Y-20 airlifter with domestic engines. What progress are they making on military jet engines? What does it mean if they finally master that technology? Yeah, it's a great point. We actually put out a, a couple of reports as we focus on the industrial base. A couple of years ago, we talked about the jet engines. And, you know, they had been making some steady progress. And what I like to tell people is that it may be rocket science, but it's just rocket science. And science is the same in Beijing as in Washington as it is in Paris or, you know, Rome. Uh, and eventually one plus one is going to equal two if you put enough time, effort, and smart people and money after it, and China has all of those, uh, you're going to crack some of these things. Uh, in the early days, they would beg, borrow, or steal, uh, mostly from the Russians, to, to be perfectly honest, although they obviously got a lot from the United States, but you know, Russia continued to sell them aircraft and aircraft engines, and they use those as models. But you, you can always steal your, yourself so close to the leading edge, uh, and then you have to put in the hard work, and China over the last 15 years has really put in the hard engineering work, learning how to bend metal, learning how to do uh, to all these advanced systems work together. On the commercial front, they're still not there. They have quite a ways to go. China, of course, has state-owned enterprises, and they have the communist system, which can force airlines operating in China to use domestic engines. But at the end of the day, the commercial market is such a cutthroat market that you have to squeeze out every ounce of efficiency, uh, and the Chinese engines are not there yet. They, they will eventually get there, but they're not there yet. On the military side, there's a greater ability to just simply replace them, to run them harder, run them hotter. And you would like them to be more efficient, but you're not so tied to that. And so we've seen them come up in quality, uh, but also the military has a bit of a luxury that the commercial market doesn't. So at the end of the day, yeah, we absolutely should expect them at some point to be able to come up on par with Russian and American engines. And that shouldn't be a, a surprise to anyone, because like I said, it, it's just a long, hard trek to do the science and do the hard work to get there. And that's exactly what China and the Chinese system has been doing. Because again, right, the Communist Party can set the policies and say, hey, we need more STEM graduates. We're going to emphasize this in high schools. We're going to develop more college courses. We're going to require more STEM college courses. Uh, we're going to drive people into those college courses in ways that Western or just democratic countries in general can't do to their populations. And then feed them into the national lab system, which again goes back to the state-owned enterprises and the PLA and all that. It's just a different system that China has. So shouldn't be any great shock. But yeah, they are definitely uh, closing in on what used to be a pretty clear advantage for uh, especially American uh, aerospace engines. Okay, well, let's flip that over for a moment, though. What, if any, technologies do they still rely on other countries for? You mentioned it used to be Russian engines, whether legitimately or through espionage. They got help from Israel and others on designs and upgrades. But are there areas where China still needs outside help to advance? Yeah, there absolutely are. And they continue to to look for that around the world. They still continue to buy Russian aircraft and Russian engines because they're not quite there yet. And it's just easier to buy it from the Russians. And I suspect the Russians are probably going to give them a, a bit of a discount to help reward them for their support for the, the Russian fiasco that's going on in Ukraine. 
And so certainly a, a lot of what goes on in a modern aircraft has to do with systems integration. Uh, and that's one of those really hard things you have to learn by trial and error. So if they can get help on that by hook or by crook. I will say uh, one of the other uh, things that they do is in really advanced technologies, so not necessarily aero engines, but say, for example, hypersonics. Cassie's put out a series of reports talking about the state of play of hypersonics research in the PRC and how they're getting there. And a lot of that uh, also, same thing goes for aerospace, same thing goes for quantum, uh, is, you know, that China has a big budget for these things. And they go out and they find people, scientists uh, and academics around the world who are the leaders in their field, and they they propose joint partnerships. Uh, they will fund those partnerships. They will fund uh, usually typically something for the institution, something for the individual researcher to go off on his own. And then sometimes they will invite them to come to Beijing over the summers when they're not teaching or actively involved in research to come and lecture and, and speak there, and they will compensate them for that. And that has been a, a very successful model for the Chinese. Again, in certain aspects, quantum computing, um, you know, quantum communication, sure, there may be some commercial, you know, dual use capability or some legitimate commercial or scientific needs for that. In the modern world at this point, if you're working on hypersonics, you have to know it's going to a security related endeavor until we somehow develop a commercial aircraft that do uh, hypersonic travel. Uh, it's going to mostly be in that in that realm. So, uh, you know, we just put out the reports to make sure that everyone knows when you take Chinese money, you have to know where that research in, in knowledge is going to go. And it goes into the system, it goes into the state-owned enterprises and goes back to the PLA. Everything the Chinese do is at scale, Brendan. So thanks very much for talking about hypersonics, right? I mean, if you go and you talk to folks who do carbon matrix composite, we do it in a very bespoke manner that applies to hypersonic weapons, whereas the Chinese are actually trying to industrialize this at scale to make their challenge a little bit easier, right? I mean, they're working with the technology in a whole variety of other potentially commercial ways for no other reason than to stand up that capability. The question I want to ask, though, is even though the Chinese have a tendency of doing things at scale and research at scale and, and variety, at the end of the day, are they producing systems like the J-20 and the FC-31, for example, that you know have a tendency of getting uh, headlines in the numbers that are actually operationally relevant? They absolutely have the plans to do so. And because of the nature of the Chinese system, uh, we absolutely should believe that they're going to be able to do that. So we've seen on the Navy side how they have continued to leverage their amazing capability and commercial to continue to churn out high quality, massive numbers of uh, naval vessels across all sizes and spectrums. Uh, the aerospace industry was not quite up to, or their naval industry is, but they're absolutely planning to make them. And yes, they, they you know, the J-20 uh, and all the things that they're building absolutely are going to be in sufficient numbers, quantity and quality. And keep in mind that for you know the foreseeable future, they are going to be concerned with things right on their periphery. That is to say, Taiwan, maybe the Senkakus, and maybe the South South China Sea, uh, but pretty much everything in and around their border. Maybe something with you know on the border with India. Uh, so they're not looking to spread their entire inventory across the globe like the United States uh, military in the United States Air Force has to, right? So if you look at the total number in the inventory in the United States Air Force, yeah, it's massive. However, we're spread in the Middle East, we're spread in Europe, we're spread across the Indo-Pacific, not just in around China, uh, and other places around the globe, as well as Homeland Defense. So when you look at the proportion of the numbers of aircraft strictly in the Indo-Pacific that would be available for any of those contingencies that I just mentioned, the numbers certainly start to favor China and they continue to produce them at least up until this point, I will see if their economy continues to falter and, and they don't have the, the post-COVID bump that they expected. If that continues, they may have to start making some hard choices. But yes, they absolutely have are building the capacity and the capability, and they continue to retire their older aircraft and build newer and newer ones. And you know, depending on how you count, 
Certainly, it would appear that uh, the LA Air Force is uh, approaching or is much younger than the, the U.S. Air Force. Now, that's not to say that it's necessarily better qualitatively. But again, we have to get there. Uh, we would be fighting in China's backyard. And so it's a much harder thing to get across the Pacific, even from you know Okinawa or the Japanese islands. But certainly from Guam, certainly from Hawaii or Alaska, uh, it's a much harder thing to get there. And the Chinese have the idea of, you know, counter-intervention, developing things, which may not be, you know, an, another aircraft. It may be missile systems right. uh, or technologies to keep them out. So, yeah, they're they're building them and uh, they're going to continue to do so for the future. And does the financial element of this change their dynamic at all? I mean, ultimately, it's kind of a command economy. I mean, is it plausible that they, for economic reasons, quote, run out of money and that actually impacts the PLA? Sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, they are... Uh, uh, the communist systems, command economies or not, are still subject to the, the, the overall laws of economics. They can play with them. They can fiddle on the margins. But at the end of the day, if the economy does not continue to grow uh, or, in, you know, indeed, at some point contracts, then, yes, the, the CCP is going to have to make some some hard choices. Uh, you know, it's it, uh, beans or bullets. Uh, at the end of the day, they, they are subject to the same same restrictions. Now, it's a big economy. Again, it can be focused in different ways, and they have many different levers that democratic countries just don't have. But it is absolutely possible that, uh, again, if the economy doesn't recover from COVID the way that they had expected to, and it hasn't yet, that at some point, probably not this year, but you know, in a couple of years' time, you may see a, a reduction in uh, capital that is available for uh, distribution throughout the state-owned enterprise security system, uh, and that will have a negative impact on the PLA or force them to make uh, some hard choices, much like the United States military had to do during the sequestrations. Now, you mentioned the Indian border. China isn't the only one on the border with India. Pakistan has reportedly signed up to receive FC-31s from China. Of course, they've been a previous customer for Chinese fighters. How serious is China about the export market? And what are their realistic prospects in the next few years? Will we be competing with them for sales as well as potentially on the battlefield? Yeah, it's a great question. Probably not anytime in the next several years. Uh, Pakistan, like you mentioned, you know, continues to be their best customer. And, you know, I don't want to say their only customer. Uh, they sell UAVs to anyone. And UAVs really is a, a quite a prolific market. But when you talk about high-end fighter aircraft or military aircraft in general, it really just tends to be Pakistan. Uh, the Russians still have their own, so they're not typically buying Chinese stuff, although they may start to buy some parts here, you know, as replacements for things that they're losing and can't produce enough. The North Koreans really can't afford and don't need a lot of the Chinese aerospace capabilities. So at this point, it really kind of is Pakistan. Uh, China continues to be interested in things going on in the Middle East. So, you know, it is potentially that they could find some customers there. Even when there's not, uh, you know, an active war going on, it's still a huge market and there's lots of money is uh, sloshing around uh, the defense sector there. So it's possible we would see them, start to see them there. It hasn't been that big of a sector for uh, the PLA. They've been really focused on doing domestic stuff. Obviously, a little bit of external customer support doesn't hurt. And then you maybe you get some real world uh, information that you wouldn't necessarily get. So if the Pakistanis, you know, ever fly against the Indians, you know, a time of a crisis or, or even a conflict, uh, maybe you get some information about how those things performs without you, the PLA, having to go to war. So we should expect that to continue, but probably not in anything significant. Uh, and certainly not competing, I would say, with, you know, the Western Western suppliers of, of military equipment, uh, at least for the next, I would say, at least five to ten, maybe ten years. But that's a good question. We'll, and we'll definitely keep an eye out on. 
Let me ask you uh, one last quick question, and it's about capability development. The J-20 is a wide-ranging aircraft. It's actually a model for the next generation air dominance program that the Air Force is developing, a long-range airplane that can exert air control over a long distance. It's not necessarily the, the most brute performance like an F-22. It's got a lot of gas, can go a long way, and fits into a conops of poking out our eyes, whether it's shooting down command planes, radar planes, and uh, refueling aircraft. But there are many people, Brendan, you know, in, in U.S. circles who say, well, I mean, the targeting problems are so big, and how could you launch missiles at such range? And, you know, can you even develop missiles that, that are rangy enough to do this? From your standpoint, does that conops stand, and what are we seeing them do that should worry us about their ability to deliver on this concept? And is this a good enough idea for us to steal, to be perfectly candid? (laughs) (laughs) Imitation is the best form of flattery. Right. So it all depends on what exactly we're we're looking at, right? We have to understand that uh, this is a Chinese solution to a Chinese problem, and that isn't necessarily going to map onto what we need or want. And you kind of alluded to it. So it isn't necessarily that they have to have as exquisite as a platform as the the F-22 or the F-35. In fact, they say outright that the J-20 isn't quite as capable. Uh, But what they are planning is, you know, Chinese solutions to Chinese problems. And they are going to rely on the entire system for that counter intervention. So all they have to do is keep the F-35s, the F-22s out farther, right? So if you have an air-to-air missile that outflies ours, which they currently do, and they are currently developing even more long-range missiles. If you have surface-to-air and um, the Internet Air Defense Network in and around uh, the eastern coast of China and over the island of Taiwan, that continues to push those out. If you use a ballistic missile to push the aircraft carriers out farther, then your naval F-35s can't even fly there. If you uh, find out ways to attack the refuelers, right, the big slow things that the jets require on and push those out further, you know, you don't have to worry about how cool an F-35 or an F-22 is. And so that's, again, the Chinese solution. So we don't necessarily need to be copying a J-20, but we absolutely need to understand how the Chinese are going to use it. And we have to develop what the Chinese answer to ours is. Uh, and we need to keep that in mind that they aren't going to come up with the same American solutions. Uh, they won't approach it in the same way that an American planner would, because it's simply not their problem. Uh, but we do absolutely need to keep an eye on how they use it how they employ it. And as they start coming to the force in more and more uh, numbers, we should expect to see them more frequently in and around the Straits, uh, you know, maybe out into the Pacific, certainly into the South China Sea. And that'll give us a, you know, a better idea how they're employing them and what some of the capabilities are. Red air just keeps getting redder. Dr. Brendan Mulvaney, director of the China Aerospace Studies Institute at National Defense University. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Terrific. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. And if you liked what you heard, hey, tell a friend, unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage. Thanks also to GE Aerospace for powering the entire flight. We'll be back next week.